Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 6, The Wari. Hello everyone and welcome back. Well, it would be my luck that right after the show received its first iTunes review, Apple announces that iTunes would be axed. Of course, by that time, I didn't have time to re-record that part in the last episode where I mentioned the iTunes review and encourage you all to go there and give the show a review. So that was great. However, though iTunes is gone or will be gone, Apple Podcasts is still a thing, just a separate thing. And there will be a whole new category just pertaining to history podcasts, which of course is pretty awesome. So I encourage you all to go there instead now and leave the show a little review to help spread the word. And of course, check out ahistoryoftheinca.wordpress.com, visit our Twitter page at Inca Podcast, and like our Facebook page as well. Thanks for doing all of that, and now let's get on with the show. Last week we talked about Tiwanaku, a city and state situated on the Altiplano. I discussed the layout of the capital, the colonies of Tiwanaku, as well as what we know of the culture and administration of the state. This week, we will be traveling north, back into Peru, to discuss Tiwanaku's rival, the Wari. The Wari capital of, wait for it, Wari, is located near the present-day city of Ayacucho, in the south-central mountains of Peru. Research for the Wari has been hindered by a couple of factors. First, research got off to a rough start, one could say. For decades, the Wari culture was confused with that of Tiwanaku. How can that be? As we discussed last week, the site of Tiwanaku is very well known and has been extensively studied. When evidence for the Wari was first discovered in the late 1800s, ceramics bearing a staff deity were uncovered. This was believed to have been a variation of the same staff deity from the sun gate itself. Though variation between Tiwanaku and these new styles was there, archaeologists called these new sites Tiwanakoid in nature. It wasn't until 1931 that Wari was finally distinguished as a standalone culture. The second hindrance to studying the Wari was the Shining Path. No, this isn't some road made of gold or anything like that. It is actually a communist party in Peru that was founded in the 1960s in the Ayacucho region. In the 1980s, it launched a guerrilla campaign against the government of Peru, with the conflict petering out in the early 1990s. Needless to say, there was a slowdown in excavations in the region as the fighting was going on. Because of the slow start and regional conflicts, there has just not been enough extensive research of the Wari, as there have been for other Andean cultures. We are still in the early stages of learning about the Wari, and there are many sites that are only just now being excavated. Despite these setbacks, archaeologists have identified the Wari as emerging from the Warpa people around 600 AD. The Warpa have been labeled as the first people to actually start terracing the Andean highlands. This terracing allowed previously unfarmable ground to come into agricultural production. It also has another added benefit. The rocks that made up the terrace would capture heat from the sun and could warm the soil. 
This allowed for the planting of crops such as maize, which previously would not tolerate the colder climate. Canals were also constructed in the mountains, connected to mountain springs and highland streams. These were extensive structures stretching for miles and miles through the mountains to ensure water for their crops. The capital of Wari developed as a vacuum. As the capital grew in size, other villages in the area experienced depopulation as people flocked to the city. The architecture of the Wari consists of rectangular buildings with large patios. The buildings are made of fieldstone with a mud looking like mortar to hold them in place. These patios are ringed with long, narrow galleries that then connect to different patios. The patios are typically enclosed on all sides, signifying that whatever ceremonies were happening were for specific groups of people only. The structures themselves could have been up to three stories high and were laid out in a grid pattern for the city. In the late 6th or early 7th centuries, the Wari began to expand from their region and into other neighboring valleys, and eventually into different parts of the Andes. This is where we'll dig into one of the more interesting debates in Andean archaeology going on today. Were the Wari an empire, like the Inca, or were they just a state, more similar and in line with Tiwanaku? This may seem trivial to us. What's the difference, really? It matters a great deal when it comes to studying a local people and their own history. Were their ancestors under the influence of an imperial system, or simply traded with the Wari? How would an empire shape these local groups with direct rule? How did cultural practices change due to Wari contact? Were they forced to change? The debate is important for fixing many holes that are present when discussing Andean history, especially when there have been many parallels drawn between how the Wari governed and how the Inca administered their empire. However, this debate is still being untangled, and so I'm going to try not to lead you too deep into the weeds. Dr. Schreiber, an Andean archaeologist, has modeled the Wari administration after that of the Inca, projecting a governing style that we know much about onto one that we are starting to learn more about. Her model for the Wari composes of areas of the empire that were under direct rule. In other words, a leader of a local group was replaced with an administrator from the core of the empire or capital area. Basically someone loyal that could be counted upon to implementing Wari rule in an area is what was sought. This would result in Wari goods being produced and eventually the Wari culture overtaking the local culture of that area. On the other side of this, Dr. Schreiber claims that the Wari also practiced indirect rule. This could be where the local lord or elites in power submitted willingly to the Inca. Perhaps the ruler would be left in power in return for certain kinds of tribute from his lands. A Wari administrator perhaps would be stationed in the area or nearby to check in from time to time. The local people could maintain their cultural identity making their own ceramics, and performing their customary rituals. Thus, little evidence of the Wari is even present in an area under indirect rule. Think of indirect rule as a sort of one company buying out the other. The CEO may get to keep his or her job, and life in the company goes on, as if nothing has really changed. 
Let's look at some examples of worry direct and indirect rule. Pikiakta in the Lucre Basin is an enormous site that demands attention. The basin is actually just to the south of Cuzco. The site itself sits on one edge of the basin overlooking the lake at the basin center, which may have been some source of sacredness. The site is laid out in a grid fashion with typical Wari architecture, long, narrow galleries, enclosed plazas, and very high walls. I have a picture of myself standing next to one of the outer walls of the site. To give you an idea of how high the wall is, I'm about 6 3 4 inches. The walls may have been painted white with the idea to overwhelm the locals who visited it. Why would locals be visiting? According to some, the niches in the walls were actually used to store mummies of the local people. The locals would have to make pilgrimages to Pikiakta to provide sacrifices to these ancestors. Now, there is yet to be enough evidence to confirm this theory. However, if this was true, with the ancestors held hostage, the locals of the surrounding lands had to tread carefully. Let's go to the south, to the Moquegua Valley. If you recall from last time, Tuanaku had established several colonies along the river within the same valley, including the settlement of Chen Chen. The Wari did not settle near the lowlands, though. That wasn't where they were comfortable. Instead, the Wari colonists established their colony on top of a distinct mountain called Cerro Ball. The mountain has a unique top in that it is flat and towers over the valley down below. The colonists at Cerro Ball created a canal system to help water their crops at a higher elevation than their Tiwanaku counterparts. The site of Cerebal was built clearly in a defensive position and, as of now, there has not been any of the local pottery found at the site either. However, the local Warakane people may have been married to some of these new settlers in the hopes of climbing higher on the social ladder. Now let's go back to the Nazca drainage system. It has been a while since we covered the Nazca, but remember that when we last left them, the site of Kawachi had been losing power as a drought began to set in. Around 650 AD, the Wari came onto the scene. A small administration building was created in the northern part of the drainage system. Mausoleums began to take place of individual burials at Nazca. Analysis of the bones themselves has revealed that some of the individuals were not from the Nazca area. It remains to be seen if these individuals were from the Wari. It is possible that the Nazca and Wari exchanged marriage alliances to help secure trade and maintain a peaceful relationship. Whatever the case, it seems that the Nazca elites liked the idea of creating such monuments as these mausoleums to help legitimize their families and rule. In addition to these mausoleums, an influx of goods were also brought into the Nazca drainage system. We have obsidian and metal objects appearing in burials. The all-important spondylus shell also appears in the archaeological record more often. The Wari may have settled in Nazca for the economic opportunities. The Nazca, as we know, had very fine ceramics and the Wari sought items like these. In fact, there has been Nazca pottery found all the way at the Wari capital itself. 
However, not everyone was enthused about these newcomers from the north. Some archaeologists believe that there may have been some in the Nazca area that actually retreated away from the Wari. From this, we can theorize that some Nazca groups saw the Wari as an opportunity to gain power and prestige by allying themselves with the newcomers. Others saw the Wari as outsiders and threats, so they moved away to remove themselves from the situation. Now let's look at the other side of the coin. Indirect rule. There have been some in the archaeological community that have called out others for not thinking more critically about different models for the Wari. In addition to this, there is a tendency, possibly unconsciously, for researchers to mold their data to an existing model, such as the empire model we just described. So in more recent years, there has been a more concerted effort to challenge the Wari imperial model. The most compelling evidence against the imperial model comes from the northern parts of Peru, as well as the central and northern coasts. Teresa and John Topic have long argued against the imperial model in what was thought to be part of the Wari Empire. Their work in the Wamachuku Valley has produced very little in terms of Wari goods. In fact, Wari ceramics are absent from administrative centers and the topics have argued that the architecture actually influenced the administrative center that the Wari attempted to build in the area. Yes, there appears to be Wari burials as well, but there are also individuals from Cajamarca and even as far away as Ecuador. The only Wari goods found are at Huaca Cerro Amaru. Here, there are multiple wells where offerings of spondylus, Obsidian and Wari ceramics are found. With the lack of evidence for Wari presence outside of the offerings at Cerro Amaru, the Tapics have dismissed Schreiber's indirect model for the Wari in the north, claiming it is nearly impossible to argue against. And they do have a point. In a way, the indirect model argues, quote, the absence of evidence for political control, in fact, demonstrates control. End quote. Basically, the absence of evidence for worry rule is actually evidence for worry rule, or at least indirect rule. When put into terms like this, it is easy to see why the indirect model of rule is under attack as more field work is done. The coast of Peru was long thought to be under the thumb of the worry as well. However, recent work has been uncovering data disputing this. At Pachacamac, just south of Lima, there was a powerful oracle, long believed to have been conquered by the Wari and incorporated into the empire. Yet, there has been little evidence to support this claim. Moving farther north, we revisit our friends, the Moche. The Warme Valley has seen Wari textiles pulled out of its soils in adequate condition. Now, I mentioned the Warme Valley in episode 3 when we discussed the Moche. It was in that list of valleys I rattled off. However, there is a debate as to how much Moche activity actually went on in this valley and if it should be considered as part of the Moche at all. More work must be done in this valley to put it into proper context. But what about the other valleys? 
Well, the only other valley worth talking about would be that of the Jeque Tepeque Valley, the place where we ended our discussion of the Moche. There, Wari and Wari-like artifacts have been found in several tombs at San Jose de Moro. These are tombs of the elites, the same elites who were struggling to stay in power. They appeared to have been acquiring Wari goods in an attempt to strengthen their grip over the commoners. They likely received these goods from the Cajamarca, who settled further up the valley. The Cajamarca colonists had connections to the Wari, but were able to keep their cultural identity intact. As we concluded in episode 3, it was the Cajamarca and not the Wari who were able to assimilate the site of San Jose de Moro into their domains. So were the Wari an empire, possibly the first in the Andes? As I said, the question is still open for debate. In the valleys around the core, and in areas to the south, such as Piquiacta, Moquegua, and the Nazca, it appears that the Wari had direct rule, or at least something similar to direct rule. Meanwhile, the new evidence coming from the north signals that the Wari were culturally influential there, but their involvement politically seems to be minuscule at best. Of course, there are arguments for looking at the cultural influence that the Wari had on so many people. Wari ceramics being copied by locals to enhance local prestige and power, spondylus and obsidian being used in offerings, mausoleums becoming widespread throughout much of the Andes. All of these things were brought about by the Wari in some way. So what even defines an empire? Ruling over a vast amount of territory? Ruling people of varying ethnicity or religion? Overseeing different governments? What about the spread of one's culture onto another? As you can probably see, depending upon how you answer the above questions, many of today's governments could be considered empires. Take the United States, for example. Each individual state has its own government and defined territory. However, all the states are governed by a central federal government. Not to mention the many ethnicities and cultural identities that are housed in the U.S., Yes, one could say that the U.S. is a democracy and aren't empires typically under an authoritarian regime or a monarchy, but it could be argued that it doesn't matter the type of central government if the central authority is ruling over a multitude of smaller governments or cultures. I already fear that I've led you deep enough into the weeds as it is with the Wari. Some will consider the Wari South America's first empire. Others will reserve that spot for the Inca. It is not for me to decide or pick a side in this debate on who had the first empire on the continent. And though it is fun to think about, debating about what is an empire is completely out of the scope of this podcast. So let's get back on track by discussing the collapse of the Wari. Sometime around 1000 AD, a new political regime took power at Wari. However, soon the city was then depopulated as construction projects show signs of abandonment midway through their completion. Wari administrative sites were also abandoned as groups moved higher into more defensible locations. At Piquiacta, the doorways were filled with rubble while goods were still inside. This has led some to believe that the inhabitants of the site had intended to return. 
However, the locals of the Lucre Basin had other plans. They lit the formidable administration center ablaze, sending a clear message to the Wari to never return. In the Mokegwa Valley, around 1000 AD, and not long after Pikyakta burned, the Tiwinaku site of Chenchen was sacked. It is possible that the Wari came down from Serabal, and with the help of the locals, or Tiwanaku defectors, attacked the colony. Yet not long after this, Serabal itself was ceremoniously set ablaze and abandoned. Over in Nazca, the entire drainage system seems to have been completely abandoned by 1200 AD. Not only did the war leave, but the Nazca also seemed to have left the area. Think about that. An entire region, once home to thousands of people, completely depopulated. What happened? How did a seemingly thriving culture crumble so suddenly? The leading culprit is drought. Around the near 950 AD, a severe drought began to creep into the Andes. This wasn't a quote-unquote normal drought, though. This one would last decades and reach different regions at different times. The drought likely hit the coast first. In Nazca, the desert continued to push east. The rivers would have dried up quickly, and the Pukios would have been fought over and controlled by groups, holding on to the precious resource. Eventually, the conditions became unbearable, and even the sites with Pukios were abandoned. The drought then would have hit the highlands and mountain regions of the Andes. The capital of Wari already had extensive canals to irrigate the terraces, but they needed them just to have adequate water flow. When the drought arrived, it quickly took its toll on the irrigation system. People had to leave the city to seek out other areas where water was more abundant. With a change in the political regime as well, this was a recipe for disaster. The new rulers were unable to adapt to the changes and their short-lived regime collapsed. Tiwanaku didn't escape the effects of the drought either. However, their collapse was much slower. Their colonies would have been impacted first, like at Chenchen. The drought conditions may have impacted the already tense relationship between the Tiwanaku colonists and the Wari, causing the latter to attack and sack the colony of Chenchen. At the time of the drought, the elites of Tiwanaku were expanding the role of feasting in their society. They were holding larger and larger feasts, fulfilling their obligations to the rule of reciprocity that was demanded in the Andes. Thanks to a high water table in the Altiplano, it took much longer for those residing in the area to feel the effects of the prolonged drought. However, year after year, little rain fell. And after decades of this happening, this had a dramatic impact on Tiwanaku. Without a way to recharge the aquifer, the water levels of the hinterland continued to drop, and the raised fields produced less and less. The Great Lake itself receded away from the city, dropping between 7 to 12 meters, or between 22 and 40 feet. Let's not forget that with the loss of its colonies, the prestige of the Tiwanaku elites would have taken a hit. No longer did caravans wind their way from afar onto the Altiplano, to deliver their goods to the city. No longer could elites justify their extravagant feasts in a bid to outdo each other. All the while, the lake that Tiwanaku had built its state upon, Lake Titicaca, was retreating from them as if seeking to escape the dying city. 
the population of Tiwanaku declined considerably as people moved higher into the mountains. Groups worked to capture what runoff from glaciers or springs that they could. Some became pastoral, leading to roaming and sometimes hostile groups. Fortified hilltop settlements were made to protect water supplies. Everyone was trying to carve a bit of life for themselves. The city of Tiwanaku was never completely abandoned, but for all purposes, the state had been. This brings us to the end of our look at societies that inhabited the Andes before the Inca. I hope you enjoyed these early episodes. I certainly enjoyed visiting these early cultures and states. There's still much for us to learn about the Moche, Nazca, Tiwanaku, and Wari. Our understanding of these four will likely shift and change as archaeologists do more excavation and research in these areas. Of course, there are many other cultures that I didn't touch upon. The Lima and the coast of Peru and the later Aymara kingdoms are a few examples. I didn't cover these cultures not because they aren't interesting or because there isn't any information available. I'm sure there's enough out there to put together some shorter episodes on the topics. However, I'm sure many of you would like to get to the main subject of this podcast, the Inca. Well, everybody, next time we will be covering the Inca, beginning with their origins. Mm-hmm.